Hi everyone, this is Bob Bro. Welcome to the best old-time radio podcast. This week we're doing an archive show. This is a Boomer Boulevard show that was first broadcast on June the 4th in 2018. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Chester? You know, the air conditioning's on. It's not, not that bad. Eh? It's pretty cool in here. <laughs> Chester's got his fan on, and he's, he's, he's got a big glass of ice there that he's taking and, and putting on his head. Oh, man. You really get hot, don't you? Hmm. Well, it does feel like summertime here. This is Bob Bro. Welcome. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. Uh, we've had temperatures in the mid-90s and the humidity is already there. You know it's humid when you're driving along in your air-conditioned car when you stop and you get out and your glasses fog up as soon as you step outside. That's when you know it's warm, hot, and humid. Right, Chester? <laughs> right. Well, listen, welcome, welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the old-time radio program where we play shows you actually remember, and I actually remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers. And everybody's welcome, and everybody enjoys these shows, but we remember them. Sometimes we remember them on television, but we do remember them, and many of us heard these shows on the radio. Now, tonight, we have three great examples. We have an episode of Dragnet, we have an episode of The Jack Benny Show, and we have an episode of Gunsmoke, and you remember all three of those. Jack Benny Show is very funny, and uh, we're going to spend a little time with that one tonight. The Dragnet episode was one of the early run, from the early run of Dragnet, with Barton Yarborough in it. And Gunsmoke is one of the very earliest Gunsmokes from 1952. In fact, you're going to meet a character tonight that more or less develops into Kitty. But this was so early in the run that Kitty hadn't even been introduced yet. So it's a great lineup. What I want you to do is get comfortable, get cool, and uh, sit down, maybe get something cold to drink, get your feet up because we're going to get started in just a minute.
Yes, you can tell from that music, we are starting things off tonight with an episode of Dragnet. And this was uh, first broadcast in 1951, so this is one of the earlier episodes. This is when Barton Yarborough was still with the show before his uh, untimely death. He's a very young man. I think he was 51 or 52 when he died. But he plays uh, Sergeant Ben Romero, who was uh, Joe Friday's partner in the beginning. At first, I didn't like Barton Yarborough in this role, but then I got to know him so well from I Love a Mystery that now when I look, listen to him, I just like him in anything he does, and Dragnet's no exception. Ben Alexander, I think, was probably my favorite later on, but uh, Barton Yarborough is very good in this one. You know, Dragnet over the years had uh, some very dramatic titles. They always used the word big in the title. Well, like, for instance... There was an episode entitled The Big Hate. Ooh, that's, uh, that's dramatic, right? The Big Bull, The Big Lie, The Big Test, The Big Compulsion, The Big Revolt. See, all of these things just conjure up very, very dramatic images in your mind. The Big Fraud, The Big Filth, The Big Rescue, The Big Bandit, The Big Death. These were all episodes of Dragnet. And uh, the one we have tonight is no different. This one is really a saucy tale because the name of our episode tonight is The Big Tomato. And this one will make you tingle from the top of your head down to your tomatoes. I know, Big Tomato. Can you imagine they'd even name an episode that? You're not even, you don't even know why. Until the very end. Well, obviously, there's some guy in here called the Big Tomato. But you don't find out why until the very end. But it's a good episode. This one talks a lot about marijuana use. And I didn't even know that was a big issue in 1951. But we'll talk about that a little bit at the end of the show. So hang on to your seats, everybody. Here comes Jack Webb as Joe Friday and Barton Yarborough as Ben Romero. In an episode of Dragnet from January 25th, 1951 entitled The Big Tomato. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. Detective Sergeant, you're assigned to narcotics detail. A band of dope peddlers launches a full-scale operation in your city. Their merchandise, marijuana, their victims, high school students. Your job, get them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, April 11th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of narcotics detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Captain Kearney. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from R&I, and it was 10.25 a.m. when I got to Central Station. 
narcotics detail. Joe? Hi. What'd you find out? Talked to the coroner. He finished posting the body. Yeah. Cause of death, multiple fractures of the skull, internal injury. Boy was 17 years old. Yeah. You checked the car? Yeah, the kid must have been doing at least 70 when he hit that streetlight. It's a real mess. Car was really wound around that pole. We're gonna have to dig up a fast answer somewhere. Lousy racket. Well, there's only one way to burn it out. Find the big man and throw the book at him. Make him an example he'll never forget, huh? You checked the juvenile bureau? Yeah, the evidence has been booked with the property clerk. How about the boy's parents? Mrs. Moore wasn't feeling too well. He drove her home. Father's still down the hall, Inspector Walker's office. Well, can we talk to him now? Yeah, he should be free by now. Let me check the book. No, already did. There's no call. Oh, okay. Let's go. You know, there's only one thing fortunate about this whole thing. What do you mean? Well, the kid being alone when he cracked up would have been a slaughter if he had a car full of his friends with him. It's still pretty grim. How's the boy's father taking it? Usual, pretty rough. He should be able to help some. Yeah. Mr. Morrow? Yes, Sergeant. Inspector asked me to wait here for you. Yes, sir. This is my partner, Sergeant Friday. Mr. Morrow, Joe. Mr. Morrow, Mr. Friday. I just don't understand it, Sergeant. I don't understand any of it. My boy Ken wasn't the type to go racing around like that in the car. He never took the car without my permission. I just don't know what got into it. Had you noticed at all whether your boy was acting a little strange the last few weeks or so? No. Of course, I only saw Ken in the morning, a few hours in the evening. I'm at the office all day. Why do you ask that? Well, was he going out very often on school nights, uh, keeping odd or unusual hours? He used to go to the library three or four nights a week to do schoolwork. Got home about midnight a few times, and I warned him about that. Mm Mm-hmm. Did you have any way of knowing if he was really spending his nights at the library? No, but I took his word for it. Ken didn't lie to me. What's this have to do with the auto accident, Sergeant? I don't think I understand. The officers investigating the accident, sir, they checked over the car afterward. What was it? Were the brakes bad? What'd they find? No? Yeah. Now you see this small metal case we found it in the front seat on the floor of the car. What's that stuff inside? Did this belong to Ken? Yes, sir. We think he was using it. What for? I don't know. It's marijuana. Men and women who traffic in narcotics all the way from the small-time peddler to the big wholesaler are rated among the lowest kind of criminal. One step lower, you find an even more vicious kind. Those who lure youngsters into the deadly trap of narcotics who feed on the nickels and dimes by supplying their young victims with dope. The death of 17-year-old Kenneth Morrow was the second of its kind within eight months. It seemed to stem from unidentified suspects who were making it their business to build a thriving marijuana trade among high school students. Thursday, 11 a.m., we continued to question the dead boy's father, Thomas Morrow, but he couldn't tell us anything further that might help. Friday, April 12th, we checked with the principal of the high school which the Morrow boy attended. We talked to the boy's teachers and checked his school record. His marks had been above average till about three months before when they began to fall off for no apparent reason. We got a list of most of the boy's friends from his teachers and we started checking them out. One was a 16-year-old blonde girl, Peggy Kane, supposedly Kenneth Morrow's girlfriend. We found her waiting outside the music room. Yes, Ken and I went around together for a while. He was a real nice boy. Did you see each other quite a bit, Peggy? Oh, for about five or six months, yes, we got along fine. Just after Christmas was the last time I went out with him, and we double-dated. Mm-hmm. Did he seem all right to you then? I mean, did he act different at all? Well, a little different, yes. Not silly, you know. He 
just wasn't like he used to be. How do you mean? Well, he didn't talk the same. Ken was a real nice boy most of the time. I guess he started getting in with the wrong crowd. He began to swear, you know, bad talk, things like that. When did all this start, Peggy? Do you remember? Just before Christmas, I think. I'm not sure. Poor Ken. Is there anything else you might have noticed? I don't know. Ken used to be pretty good about his studies. Then all of a sudden, it seemed he just didn't care. Sometimes he'd come into the library. We used to study there. He'd make a lot of noise. He'd just changed, that's all. After a while, we didn't see each other there anymore. Well, why was that, Peggy? We just didn't come down. I called his house a couple of times. His folks said he was at the library. I didn't say anything to him. Mm-hmm. Well, did Ken have many friends here at school? Do you know that? Not many, no. I see. Well, those he did have, who would you say was closer to him? Oh, gee, I don't know, Sergeant. There were half a dozen of them. Ken used to be with all of them. No one boy in particular? Well, Bob Lavelle, maybe. I saw Ken in Bob's car a few times. Does Lavelle go to school here? Yes, he's a senior. Ken used to work with Bob down in the cafeteria after school, but he got in a mix-up. He was fired. Bob was fired? No, Ken. He was rude to one of the ladies down there who does the cooking. Bob still works there. Would he be at the cafeteria now, do you know? Yes, I think so. The fountain's open until about 3.30. And you think that this Bob Lavelle was about the closest friend that Ken had, huh? I think so. The only one I know, anyway. Have you talked to Ken's folks? Yeah, we have. I feel so sorry for him. Oh, gee, I think I have to go now, Sergeant. I have a chemistry class. Just one more question, Peggy. Last time you went out with Ken on this double date, who was the other couple? Do you remember? I don't remember their names. They were some kids I never saw before. Ken knew them. It wasn't much of a date. Mm-hmm. Where did you go? We started for the show, but Ken changed his mind. He wanted to go to the beach and park. He was acting funny, talking all the time, saying silly things. The other boy was the same way. Oh, were they drinking? No, I never saw Ken take a drink. I couldn't smell any liquor on his breath. I don't know. It was such a silly thing. What's that? Well, maybe it's just my imagination, but Ken and this other boy had a real terrible musty smell about him. I kidded them about it, and they said they'd been to a tea party. That's where they got it. They kept talking silly like that all evening. Mm, I see. Was the musty smell all over the car or just on the board? All over. Kind of made me sick, but they didn't seem to mind it. Well, look, I'd like you to think real careful, Peggy. Have you ever come across that musty smell on anybody around the school here? Yes, I have, a couple of times. Makes me sick. What is it? Who did you notice it on, Peggy? Bob Lavelle. Ben and I went back to the principal's office and checked the record on Robert Lavelle. He was 18 years old, and he was scheduled to graduate in June. The registrar told us that there was a good chance that he wouldn't be graduated because his marks had been poor for the better part of the year. They dropped even lower during the present semester. Lavelle had played football the year before and had made third string on the all-city team. He was well-liked by his teachers. For the last two years, he'd worked part-time at the school soda fountain. We went down to interview him. Nice setup, huh? Yeah. Cafeteria, soda fountain. Wasn't like that in my day. Mm, That must be the boy there behind the counter. Oh, yeah. Let's sit down. Mm -hmm. How about that, Joe? What's that? That sign hanging up there. Idiot special. Five scoops of ice cream, marshmallow, bananas... Chocolate, strawberry flavoring, whipped cream topping, maraschino cherries, chopped nuts, and onion? No, you're reading over. That's on the hamburger sign there. Oh. Yeah? You want something? Chocolate soda. Could you make it with vanilla ice cream, please? Chocolate soda with vanilla cream. Are you Bob Lavelle? Yeah, that's right. Police officers, Bob. We'd like to talk to you. Oh. 
Well, I'm pretty busy right now. Got to clean up. We close in a few minutes. I'll make you soda right away. You say chocolate? Yeah, that's right. But we'll make it brief. Did you know Ken Morrow, Bob? A little, yeah. He used to work here. Did you spend much time with him? Outside of school, I mean? Not much. Went to a couple of shows together, that's about all. I'm kind of rushed now. When was the last time that you saw him? Do you remember? A week ago, I guess. Too bad about Ken. How about the night he was in the accident? Did you see him then? No, I didn't know him too well. He went around with a different crowd. Mm-hmm. They reached me a bag of those cashews, huh, Joe, on the card there? Yeah. Oh. There you go. Oh, thanks. Want some? Crisp? No, no, thanks. The nuts are a dime, officer. Right there on the counter, Bob. Oh, yeah. I got to get going soon as I close. I have to get out of town. We talked to some of Ken Morrow's friends around the school, Bob. They tell us that he used to drive around in your car with you quite a bit. Just a couple of times around school. And you hadn't been with him for about a week before the accident. That's right. Just what I told you. Mm-hmm. You want a little whipped cream on that? Yeah. Yeah, Lil. How about a cherry? Good. Good idea. There you are. Thank you. Too late to fix a hamburger? Yeah, I really got to close up. It's getting a little late, officers. I'm going to have to close up right now. Well, we'll make it fast. Uh, did you notice anything different about the Morrow boy in the last few weeks? Anything peculiar at all? No, he was the same as ever. I didn't notice anything. All right, look, Bob, we're going to lay it out for you. Did you know he was using marijuana? No, I didn't know anything about it. Do you have any idea where he might have gotten it? I wouldn't know that. Look, you mind if I lock up the counter now? I'll come around the other side. Sure, go ahead. I didn't know that about Ken, officer. I wouldn't know where he got the stuff. You sure he was using Mary? Well, we found some in his car. We found some more in his locker upstairs. That's tough. Anything more, officer? I gotta hurry. Well, it's just routine, Bob. We did the same with the other boys we talked to. We'd like to check your locker. You don't mind, do you? I gotta get out of town. I'm late now. Your locker's just upstairs, isn't it? Won't take that long. It's important to me. I gotta get out of town. We've got our car outside. We'll drive you down. We'll be down there in no time. No, I've already got a ride. Can't you check it tomorrow? It's not gonna take a minute, Bob. Now, let's go, huh? All right. Say, I happen to remember. I didn't bring my locker key today. That's so? Yeah. Come to think of it, I don't know where it is. I guess I lost it. Well, they must have a pass key around here, don't they? I don't think so. Well, we'll ask at the office, huh? You're putting me in a jam, officer. That's going to take time. I'm due downtown. I'm sorry, Bob, but we got to check it. I got my locker all jammed up with stuff. It'll take us an hour. Office is down there, Joe. Yeah, all right, let's go. I don't know why you're picking on me. My locker's jammed. They can't get it open. Why are you picking on me? Let's ask him here. Go ahead, Bob. Close the door. Yeah? I've got my key. I'll show you. Robert Lavelle took us to his locker and opened it. Hidden inside one of his gym shoes, we found four sticks of medium-grade marijuana. We took them, put them in an envelope, and sealed it. 
On the way downtown, the boy told us that he'd been buying the stuff for about six months and reselling it to some of the students at the high school. Said that he paid 50 cents a piece for the sticks and sold them for 75. He was an occasional user himself. Before we turned him over to the juvenile officers, he told us that a man named Ray Jensen supplied him with the marijuana. Jensen's address was a trailer camp in the southwest part of Los Angeles. We drove out and checked with the operator of the camp. He pointed out Jensen's trailer at the rear of the camp. That one, Joe? The blue and gray one? Yeah, this is good right here. Okay. Looks like Jensen's doing well, huh? Yeah, nice looking trailer. All right, open it up. Get out of here. Come get on. out. Watch it, Joe. All right, hold it, mister. Get out. Get out. All right, Jensen. That's good, Ben. I'll get him. Yeah. All right, come on. Get out. What's the pitch, huh? Where's your warrant? It's all over the floor, Jensen. Marijuana. Who tipped? One of those lousy kids, huh? Which one? You guess. You know enough of them. You can't tab me for all that. I'm not the big guy. All right, then who is? I don't know. I'm only one of the mules. Where do you get your stuff? The big guy, the big tomato. That's what they call him. Yeah? Big man. Nobody sees him. I don't even know what he looks like. Neither do you. You let us worry about that. Come on. Big tomato. That's what they call him. You won't get him. He's smart. You won't get him in 89 years. Maybe not, but we'll get him. Friday, April the 12th, 7 p.m., we searched the trailer and a stakeout was placed on it. And then we took Ray Jensen downtown to the main jail where he was booked for suspicion of narcotics, a felony. The next day, Ben and I went back and questioned him. We got nowhere. The only thing he'd tell us was that the leader of the marijuana ring was unknown to him. The big tomato, that's all he could tell us. We went back and started rechecking leads furnished us by some of the high school boys who had purchased narcotics from Robert Lavelle. They all ended nowhere. Meantime, the flow of marijuana into the schools and into the hands of the teenage students continued. We'd no sooner choke off one source of supply when two more would turn up. We knew that there was only one real solution. Find the gang leader and wipe out the entire supply and distribution setup. We stayed on it. Monday, April 22nd, Ben got a call from one of his informants that he had a lead on the source of marijuana on the east side of town. The informant's name was Willie Breck a groundskeeper at a golf course near one of the city high schools. We drove out to talk to him. We located Breck by the clubhouse near the first tee. On the tee now, our going, Richmond, Virginia. You remember my partner, don't you, Willie, Joe Friday? Oh, yeah. Hi, How are you, Willie? Kind of busy today, big tournament. Yeah, quite a crowd you got here. It's a nice turnout. Yeah, you've been having trouble, huh? Out of Marion town? Yeah, you think you can help us? Maybe I can. Dirty business, huh? Working high school kids with that stuff. It's real dirty. Any ideas, Willie? Don't know how much of it's true. It's all from the grapevine downtown. The boss is somebody they call the Big Tomato. It's a funny one, huh? Any idea who he is? Couldn't say. He's getting lots of this stuff in, though. Usual feed line over from Mexico. Mm-hmm. What else, Willie? I hear there's more on the way. Don't know when, though. All for high school trade. Guess they figure they got a good business. How'd they get in the junk over, do you know? No, but it's getting here. Almost any kid can get some over on this side of town. Imagine that. Kids in their teens. Weed hits. Yeah. How about this big tomato, Willie? No word at all? This one. Pretty thin. Yeah. There's a connection. Lives over on Hauser Boulevard. Got his number here somewhere. 
It's supposed to be the main connection for this tomato guy. Oh, yeah. There's his address. Uh, third number there, it's a six. Uh, his name is Tony Childs. Mm -hmm. Is he supposed to handle all the stuff? Most of it, I hear. Gets it all from the big tomato. Mm -hmm. That about it? That's it. Tony Charles, you got the address. Many thanks, Willie. Anything comes up, you'll call, huh? Sure thing. How's the job out here? Better than yours. I sure wouldn't want it. Working every day around joy poppers, mules, mainliners. Well, somebody's got to do it, Willie. Yeah, but not for me, Sergeant. Those dopesters are all lice. Selling junk to kids. Guess you met the lowest, huh? No, not yet. We're looking for him. back to the office and checked the name and address of Tony Childs through R&I. No previous record. A stakeout was placed on his home and at his place of business. Childs himself was placed under 24-hour surveillance. A week passed. Nothing happened. Another week. Still nothing. There was no let-up in the supply of marijuana finding its way into the city and then into the schools. We couldn't see the beginnings of the racket, but we saw the end result. The percentage of juvenile users was still on the upswing. Wednesday, May 8th. We heard rumbles of another big marijuana buy in the offing. Either it failed to materialize or we missed it. Friday, May 10th. Ben and I took our turn shadowing the suspect, Tony Childs. Can you see him from here, Joe? Yeah. He's still in the barber shop. There's two guys with him. Yeah. Ten past four, we better check in, huh? Yeah, I'll call in, huh? Drugstore there. Must have a phone. Yeah, all right. I'll be right back. please. Thank you. Yeah, Johnny, it's Joe Friday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we got him paid. Okay, right away. Bye. What have you got? Tony Childs. They want him picked up right away. How come? Well, they just raided his place. They found 32 ounces of weed in his room. Supposed to have more on him. Oh, let's go. Come on. What do you think, trouble? Well, don't be surprised. Charles, I'd like to talk to you. What's that? Police officers I'd like to talk to you and your two friends here downtown. Can't make it, copper. Flying to Vegas tonight. We want to see you downtown first. Look, don't push me, huh? Nobody's pushing you, Charles. We want to see you downtown. Now, come on, let's go. Look out, Joe! Wrap him, Sam! <laughs> That's it. Three of them. Okay. I'll get them. All right. All right, come on, you. And I'm glad this doesn't come up often. Where's the barber? He ran outside. Rough one, huh? Yeah. What's your hunch, Joe? Think one of these three is the big tomato? I don't know. Let's ask him. A search of the barber shop failed to reveal the presence of any narcotics. Tony Childs and his two companions were found to have a dozen sticks of marijuana in their possession. 
They were treated for cuts and bruises at Georgia Street and then booked for suspicion of narcotics, a felony, at the main jail. Three other men found at Child's apartment at the time of the raid were also booked. We got nowhere questioning any of them. As usual, we had the small fry, but the ringleader, the big tomato, was still in the clear. Still free to hire somebody else to run the marijuana supply line into the high schools. Three weeks passed. Together with Captain Kearney and Sergeant Barr, Ben and I rechecked our earlier leads. We ran down anything that even looked like it might be promising. Nothing panned out. Wednesday, June 5th, 5.30 p.m., we got a call from the main jail. Tony Childs wanted to talk to us. Ben and I went over to see him. Charles? I got something for you. Been playing the stooge long enough. If I'm good enough for jail, so's he. All right, what do you got? It's a big buy coming off. When you get him, tell him how long I've been in here. What kind of a buy? Mary, one of the biggest. It was set up before I got in here. Where's the mate gonna be? Bruno Street, down by the train yards. I'll draw you a map. Setup's the same. Car pulls up and honks a couple of times in an alley down there. Who's handling the buy? A big man. Don't waste any time. When is it? Tonight. We went back to the office and met with Sergeants Barr and Jacobson. 8 p.m. Ben and I took up our positions on the stakeout along with the rest of the men. We had a clear view of the exact location where the buy was to be made. We waited. 10 p.m. 11 p.m. No one showed. Midnight came and went. 1.30 a.m. Still no sign. At 18 minutes of two, we spotted a man carrying a shopping bag emerge from behind a row of freight cars near the end of the rail yard. He made his way across the street to the alley. He stood back in the shadows. As soon as the car gets in the alley, we pull up and block it, huh? Yeah, that's right. Beck will do the same thing down at the other end. Headlights coming in the alley. through. What's the time now? Four minutes to two. We waited. Eighteen minutes passed. Still no sign of the car that, according to Childs, was supposed to be there for the big buy. We could still see the figure of a man with a shopping bag huddled in the alley. 3 a.m. Joe. Yeah? Car down there in the alley. Yeah. That's it. You want to start up? Yep. Just enough to block the alley. Uh-huh. That's good. All right, come on, let's go. Come on. All right, kill your engine and get out of the car. Joe, look out! They can't go far. Come on. All right, let's get them out of there. Yeah. There's three of them. Yeah. Here's the guy with the shopping bag. All right, I got him. Crash knocked them cold. Yeah. That's one. Easy there. Yeah. Pull right over there, will you? That's Get his coat off of that. I got it. Okay. That's it. That's it. Go three of them. Yeah. Hey. Hey, look at this, Joe. Found one of them in this guy's hand. Tin can, huh? Mm-hmm. Full of marijuana. Did you look at the labels on those cans? Yeah. Fancy, solid, packed tomatoes. There he is, the big tomato. Hello? 
story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On October 3rd, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 89, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. John A. Stanson, alias the Big Tomato, along with his associates in the narcotic gang, was tried and convicted for violating the State Narcotic Act. He received sentences as prescribed by law and are now serving their terms in the state penitentiary. The radio editors of the United States and Canada have named Dragnet the best radio program of its type for 1950. And Dragnet's Jack Webb, the most promising star of tomorrow. In behalf of Dragnet, I'd like to thank the radio editors of the United States and Canada and the editors of Motion Picture Daily, who conducted the voting in the 15th annual poll for Fame magazine. just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, portions transcribed from Los Angeles. Later, here's Spellbound with Joseph Cotton on Screen Directors on NBC. From January 25th, 1951, that was Dragnet. And the name of that episode was <laughs> was The Big Tomato. Ah, uh, The Big Tomato. It makes me shiver from my head to my tomatoes. Oh, I already said that, didn't I? How do you fix a broken tomato? With tomato paste. <laughs> Did you notice at the end there was no actor that played The Big Tomato? They had him arrested, but you never heard any dialogue. I guess that's how they got out of paying an actor. But I think it would have been a little more effective if they would have had somebody talking there at the end, because after all, he was the, he was the big star. Anyway, that was, that was a good episode. I enjoyed it. I, I will say this, that I was around in 1951. I don't remember much about it. I was, you know, four years old, something like that. But I do remember... In the early 50s, we never heard about marijuana. I suppose the word existed. I mean, we probably heard it, but I don't remember marijuana until actually after I was out of high school and in college. And and I, I guess there was talk about the beat generation of the 50s, you know, the the um, Greenwich Village uh, on the bongos and all that. I suppose they used some marijuana. I didn't know anybody in high school that used marijuana. And I will say this, I have never used marijuana in my life. I don't know that I've ever been in a room where it was being smoked. And I know that paints me as uh, some kind of odd in a lot of people's minds, but I, I just never was. And it just wasn't part of my culture. It wasn't part of my uh, personal ethics. But I know that uh, later, a lot of kids in college smoked it, and of course, it became a big deal in the uh, late 60s and, and all through the 70s. I guess it's still a big deal today. Anyway, that was kind of interesting. I don't remember ever hearing, uh, hearing about marijuana sticks. You heard about reefers and cigarettes and that sort of thing. Never heard about marijuana sticks, but that's what they had tonight. And he had his big tomato cans filled with, with sticks. 
Since we're on the, on the subject of tomatoes, here's a, here's a well-known saying. A person is knowledgeable if they know that a tomato is a fruit. A person is very wise if they know not to put a tomato in a fruit salad. Ain't nothing in the world that I like better than bacon and lettuce and homegrown tomatoes. Up in the morning and out in the garden, get your ripe ones, don't get a hard Plant them in the spring, eat them in the summer. All winter without them is a culinary bummer. I forgot all about the sweating and the digging. Every time I go out and pick me a biggin'. Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes. What would life be without homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money can't buy, and that's true love and homegrown tomatoes. But there's nothing that a homegrown tomato won't cure Put them in a salad, put them in a stew You can make your own very own tomato juice You can eat them with eggs and eat them with gravy You can eat them with beans, pit or navy Put them on the side, put them in the middle A homegrown tomato on a hot cake riddle Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes What a life be without homegrown tomatoes Only two things and one came by And that's true love, homegrown tomatoes Life I lead, you could call me Johnny Tomato Seed. Cause I know what this country needs. It's homegrown tomato in every yard you see. When I die, don't bury me. In a box in a cold, dark cemetery. Out in the garden would be much better. Cause I could be a pushing up a homegrown tomato. Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes. What a life be without homegrown tomatoes. It's only two things that money came by, and that's true love. Homegrown tomatoes. Ready tomorrow, I'll come tonight. 
All right, enough with the tomatoes now. <laughs> now it's time to have some fun with uh, our comedy corner. And tonight we're going back to Beverly Hills to visit with Jack Benny and the gang. Been a while since we've uh, had a Benny show on, and I've had folks uh, emailing me saying, Where's Jack Benny? Well, we can't go too many weeks without uh, having one of these great shows. This one is one of the early ones from CBS. This was broadcast on October the 9th in 1949. And it's a great story. <laughs> Jack uh, loses his memory, and it's explained how that happened very early in the show. A lot of good stuff in this one, so relax and enjoy. Here's the Jack Benny Show from October the 9th, 1949. Jack's memory is lost. The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike. The Lucky Strike Program, starring Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, last week, while Jack was taking inventory in his pantry, a big can of tomato juice fell off the shelf and hit him on the head. Since then, Jack hasn't been himself, and Mary is terribly worried. So now we take you to Mary's home in Beverly Hills. Oh, Miss Livingston, I just called Dennis Day, and he'll be right over. Good. Did you call Don Wilson? Uh-huh. And did you call Phil Harris? Oh, yes. I called him twice. <laughs> twice? Pauline, why didn't you give him the message the first time? I couldn't. He picked up the phone and went right into That's What I Like About the South. <laughs> he would. Oh, I think Mr. Harris is wonderful. I wish there was some subtle way I could get him to kiss me. Well, I... <laughs> well, I can help you, Pauline. When Mr. Harris is here, come into the room with a cork in your mouth. <laughs> He'll pull it out and have you up to his lips before he knows what he's doing. Gee, Miss Livingston, do you think it'll work? Are you kidding? It'd even work with my sister, babe. <laughs> now, Pauline, you better go in the kitchen and... Oh, I'll get that. Oh, hello, Mary. Hello, Mary. Hiya, Livy. Hello, boys. Come on in. Oh, say, Mary, that call sounded quite urgent. What happened? Yeah, what's up, Liv? Well, I'm worried about Jack. Last week, while he was taking inventory in his pantry, a big can of tomato juice hit him on the head. And since then, he's been spending money like mad. Wait, wait. <laughs> wait just a minute. Hold it. Look, Mary, the, uh, the acoustics ain't so good in here. Would you mind throwing that again? <laughs> I said since Jack got hit on the head, he's been spending money. Jackson? Yes. Whose? His. No. Yes. Well, heavens to Max Factor. That old man has blown his top. <laughs> Phil, this is no laughing matter. Will you please sit down? Well, the chairs are taken. He can sit on my lap. Pauline, you're not supposed to be in here. Now, boys, the question is, what are we going to do about Jack? Nothing. Why tamper with a slot machine when it's paying off? <laughs> Phil, this is nothing to joke about. I'm really worried. I'm worried, too. I didn't sleep a wink. I walked the streets all night. You did? Yeah, my folks moved and didn't tell me where. 
Well, I wouldn't worry about it, Dennis. I'm sure it was just an oversight. Some oversight. It's the fifth time they did it this month. <laughs> Dennis, keep quiet. Am I heavy, Pauline? Phil, get off her lap. <laughs> now, kids, I talked to the doctor, and he said the reason Jack is spending money is because when the can hit him on the head, it caused a quilobum caribri compressit. Quilobum caribri compressit? What's that? That's Latin for hand me the jug, Bremley. It's cold outside. <laughs> There's no use talking to you, Phil. Well, you can talk to me, Mary. I know how serious it can be. My mother once hit my father over the head, and he was unconscious for two days. For two days? What'd she hit him with? Me. <laughs> with you? She kept hitting him and hitting him. Dennis. Oh, boy, could the Dodgers have used her. <laughs> Dennis, please. Now, come on, kids. I think it's time we got started for Jack's house. Okay, Mary, let's go. Rochester, Rochester. Hello, boss. I let you sleep late because I thought it would help you cold. Uh. And besides, I... Well, where'd you get that bathrobe? That's a beauty. Oh, I bought it yesterday. Of course, it's nothing fancy, but what can you expect for $250? For... <laughs> $250 for a bathrobe? And Rochester, send my old one to Fred Allen. And you, uh... <laughs> Better put a sandwich in each pocket. He's out of work. Now. <laughs> well, I think I'll go back to my room and get dressed. I want to do a little shopping before the gang gets here for rehearsal. But, boss, you've been shopping every day this week. Oh, that was just to pick up a few antiques. Antiques? You mean that spin wheel in the living room is only for ornamental purposes? Yes, why? When you came home with it, I ran to the backyard and planted cotton. <laughs> Now, Rochester, stop being silly. You have enough work to do around here. I have? Certainly. Now that I think of it, you can have the evening off. Gee, thanks, boss. I think I'll call my girl Susie and take her out. Well, that's a good idea. And Rochester, here's $20. Show her a good time. Here, take it. $20? But... No, no, Rochester, I want you to have it. Now, you take that money and go out and have a... Oh, Rochester. You've got tears in your eyes. <laughs> I can't help it, boss. You haven't been so nice to me since I was in bed with pneumonia. Rochester. You felt so sorry for me, you only made me work half days. What are you talking about? Don't you remember, boss? You used to pick me up at the hospital every day at noon. I don't remember that. Well, I'm going to put my clothes on. See you later. da da dee da 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 dee da da $20. Well, I tell Susie about this. I'm going to call her right now. Hello? Hello, Susie. This is Rochester. Oh, hello, Rochester. I was hoping you'd call. Well, honey, I got tonight off and we'll really do the town. What? I'll pick you up in a taxi. We'll go to a restaurant for champagne cocktails and a big steak dinner, and then we'll go dancing. Rochester, are you all right? Yeah, I'm all right. It ain't me, it's the boss. Mr. Benny? Well, what's the matter with him? I don't know, but it's lovely. Lovely! <laughs> Rochester, 
about? Well, it's a long story, but I just got $20 from Mr. Benny. Rochester, now you untie that man and give it right back to him. <laughs> no, no, honey, he gave it to me. He gave it to me. Gee. Now, look, Susie, I haven't seen you all week, and I feel kind of romantic today, so after dinner, I'll take you to Mulholland Drive, and we'll watch the sunset. Watch the sunset? Oh, Rochester, by the time we have dinner, we won't get to Mulholland and Drive until it's pitch dark. Yeah. <laughs> now, look, honey. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Here comes Mr. Benny. Uh, I'll see you tonight. Okay, Rochester. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Well, Rochester, I'm ready to leave. Uh, what'll I tell you, Cash, when they come here for rehearsal? Oh, I'll be back before they get here. I'm only going down. I'll answer that. Hello? No April showers. <laughs> Making <laughs> way. <laughs> Bell. They bring the flowers. <laughs> Bell. Bell. Now, don't get mad, Mr. Benny. I didn't want to call you up for a job again, but my wife made me do it. Don't be such an apologetic schnook, Melvin. Tell him how important you are. <laughs> Well, look, Desdemona, maybe I'd better not aggravate him. Well, if you won't tell him, I will. Give me that phone. Hello, Benny? <laughs> Who are you? I'm Mrs. Blank, Melvin's wife, and my Mel is doing you a favor by wanting to appear on your program. Look, Mrs. Blank. My Melvin is very talented, and he almost got a big part in a very important picture. What picture? Josephine sings again. <laughs> now cut that off. <laughs> now look, Mel. Mel, I've got a part for you on my program. If you'll just stop with those silly imitations. Now, come to rehearsal at my house in an hour. Oh, gee, thanks. I can use the 30 bucks. $30? Is that all you're getting? Well, Mel, from now on, I'm going to give you 100 Is that all right, Mel? <laughs> Mel? <laughs> Mel? I don't know what you said to my husband, but he just swallowed his upper plate. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Goodbye. Now, Rochester, Rochester, you better have some food for the gag when they come for rehearsal. Yes, sir. I'm going out now, do a little more shopping. I'll be back soon. Mm -mm. That, uh, what a change has come over that man. It's hard to believe that being hit on the head with a can of tomato juice could cause Coelobum Caribri Compressit. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but you've got to live in Beverly Hills to have it. <laughs> Well, I better get some food ready for the... Now, who can that be? Oh, hello, hello Rochester. Rochester. Oh, hello, everybody. Come on in. Come on in. Rochester, we came over a little early so we could all... Say, wait a minute. What's that can of tomato juice doing on the piano? That's the one that hit Mr. Benny on the head. The newsreels want to take pictures of it. <laughs> take pictures of that? Yeah, that little old can put more money into circulation than the Marshall Plan. <laughs> Rochester's Mr. Benny here. No, he went to do some more shopping. He'll be back soon, though. Shopping again today? I wonder what he's buying this time. Well, what do you think of this one, sir? Well, it, it doesn't look bad, but uh, 
I'd like something a little larger. Well, I'm sorry, sir, but this is the largest yacht we have. <laughs> well, it, it is the best-looking one I've seen. I'm sure you'll find it most satisfactory. Yes, it's yes. 48 feet long and has a cruising speed of 18 knots an hour. Good, good. It sure looks nice. Uh, tell me, mister, what are these? Uh, they're diesels. Oh. And what are dozels? I mean, what are... <laughs> What, uh, what are diesels? Eh? Uh, diesels are engines, yeah, and you'll huh? find this type very reliable on long voyages. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Would this boat be able to go to Hawaii? Oh, certainly, sir. A trip to Hawaii would be nothing for a yacht like this. Well, that's fine. See, I'll be sending it over there quite often. Oh, business? No, but there may be another strike, and I love fresh pineapple. But <laughs> why worry about another strike now? We'll cross that bridges when we come to it. <laughs> Now, uh... Oh, mister. Mister, why are you leaning over the rail? I, uh, dropped my fountain pen. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, tell me, uh, what's the, uh, what's the price of this yacht? $50,000. That sounds reasonable. I think I'll take it. Well, you're certainly in for a lot of happy, carefree days on this yacht, Mr., uh, uh Mr., uh... Benny. Benny? Yes, yeah, Jack Benny. Jack Benny? <laughs> J-A-C-K-B-E-N-N-Y. <laughs> All right, sir, you've had your little joke. Now, what's your name? <laughs> Barney D. I told you it's Jack Benny. See, I've signed it on this check for $1,000 as a deposit. Well, I'll Now, here's be... my address. If you come over to my house this afternoon with the bill of sale for the yacht... I'll give you the rest of the money. Oh, very good, sir. And by the way, I wish you'd paint the name on the bow. I want to call it the Mary L. after Miss Livingston. Yes, sir. Oh, and one more thing. I intend to anchor my yacht in the San Pedro Harbor. Oh, very good, sir. Shall we truck it down to San Pedro, or will you wait for the rainy season? <laughs> oh, send it down immediately. Yes, sir. I'll be over at your house as soon as I get the papers drawn up. Good day, sir. Goodbye. I have to hurry now. I want to stop at the corner drugstore. Uh, here you are, sir. A tube of toothpaste and a package of razor blades. Will it be anything else? Well, yes. I have a cold that's been bothering me for a couple of weeks. I don't know what to do about it. Well, why not try a four-way cold tablet? Oh, give me an eight-way cold tablet. Money is no object at all. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Benny. Nice seeing you in the bank again. Thank you. How much do you want to deposit today? I don't want to make a deposit. I want to withdraw $50,000. All I said was I want to withdraw $50,000. Where did everybody go? Oh, well. Here you are, sir. 360 North Camden Drive. Thank you, cabbie. That'll be 45 cents, sir. 45 cents, eh? Well, here's a dollar. Keep the change. Thank you. You're quite welcome. Uh, dee -da -dee -da -da. Oh, mister. Mister. What is a driver? Didn't Jack Benny used to live here? Yes, yes. He used to. I can't understand people. I've been a big star for 18 years. Nobody recognizes me. Oh, darn it, I forgot my key. Hope we finish rehearsal quickly today. There's a little more shopping I want to do. 
Oh, hello, boss. Everyone's waiting for you in the den. Well, I'll go right in. There's no business. Oh, hello, kids. Hello, hello Jack. Jack. Hello, Mr. Benny. Hiya, Dennis. Uh, Rochester told us you were out shopping again. Yes, yes, Mary. I just bought a yacht, and I'm going to call it the Mary L. after you. You bought what? A yacht. <laughs> and here's a box of candy for you, too, Mary. Uh, thanks. Thanks. I think you'll like this assortment, Mary. This candy, this candy, caramels, fruits, and nuts. Speaking of nuts, Mr. Benny, how are you feeling? <laughs> What was that you said, kid? Oh, it was nothing, Jack, nothing. Oh. Well, kids, as long as you're all here, we'll start rehearsing. Now, Dennis, do your song while I hand out the script. Okay. Very good. Now, Don, the next thing I want to rehearse is the commercial. Uh, Don, is the sportsman quartet here? Well, no, they're not, Jack. You see, this week I prepared just a straight commercial. Why? Well, in that way, you won't need the quartet, and that'll save you $500. Save me $500? Don, are you crazy? 
When will you ever learn that money was made to spend? I'm ashamed of you. If there's anything I can't stand, it's a cheapskate. But, Jack, I thought... Don, I don't care what you thought. Lucky Strike. Lucky Strike pays millions of dollars more than official parity prices for that fine, that light, that naturally mild tobacco. And you have the temerity to try and save me a measly $500. But, Jack, certainly... Don't but jack me. Don, at auction after auction, Lucky Strike buys tobacco that's smooth, mild, and mellow, out of which they make those Luckies that are so round, so firm, so fully packed, so free and easy on the draw. And you, you have the audacity to assume that I'd like to save a lousy $500. Gah! Speedy Riggs ought to thrash you to within an inch of your life. But Jack, now... Don, Don, have you got a fountain pen? Yes. Well, you sit right there at that table and write LSMFT a thousand times. <laughs> Dennis, what are you staring at? I still can't figure it out. Can't figure out what? Why my folks keep moving all the time. <laughs> Well, that I don't understand at all. Now, let's get on with the rehearsal so we can... Oh, for heaven's sake. What's that can of tomato juice doing on the piano? Uh, Rochester put it there. Yeah, the newsreels will be here any minute. What? Dennis, be quiet. Now, why should a can of tomato juice be here? Oh, Rochester! Rochester! Oh, I'll put it away myself. Excuse me a minute. Can't understand what's the matter with everybody. Don trying to save me money, Mary whispering. Oh, well. Gee, the pantry is full. Oh, there's a little space on this top shelf. If I stand on my tiptoes, I could just... Boss, did you call me? Yes, Rochester. Why did you... Boss, look out! Look out! The cans are falling! <laughs> Rochester, this is all Boss, your fault. Boss, look out! There's another one! How do you like that? It happened again. Rochester! Rochester, what's going on in here? Jack, Jack, what happened? Jack, are you hurt? Huh? What? What'd you say, Mary? I asked if you were hurt. No, 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 I'm all right. Now, come on, Rochester, let's finish taking this inventory. <laughs> inventory? Jack, you finished that last week. Yeah, we're here for rehearsal. Rehearsal? I don't know what you're all... Rochester, what are you standing around all dressed up for? I got a date. You said I could have the night off. When did I give you the night off? About an hour ago. You even gave me $20 spending money. I? <laughs> I gave you $20? Sure. Here. I'll show it to you. See? <laughs> I should have never taken it out of my pocket. 
Don, Don, he's back to his old self. Yeah, hit him again, hit him again, harder, harder! Dennis, you keep quiet. Now look, kids, I don't know what this is all about, but so, come in. Well, here I am, Mr. Benny. I hope I didn't keep you waiting. Waiting? What do you want, mister? I've come for the $49,000 you owe me on the yacht. <laughs> what? What did you say? I said I've come for the $49,000 you owe me on the yacht. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mister, you've had your little joke. Now, what do you want? <laughs> I'm not joking. You bought a yacht, put a $1,000 deposit on it, and still owe me $49,000. I? I gave you a thousand dollars? Let me see it. I will not. I'm keeping it right in my pocket. Now I know why I'm a butler and he's a yacht salesman. <laughs> Quiet, Rasha. This man is crying some swindle game saying I bought a yacht. But, Jack, you yourself told us you bought it, and I think you'll get a lot of pleasure out now, of it. Now, you keep your big fat mouth out of this. Oh, he's right, Jack. You ought to keep the yacht. Barry. You even named it after me. Never mind. And get your hands out of that candy. <laughs> now, look, mister, if you think you can swindle me... I'm not swindling you. You ordered the yacht. You paid a deposit. And I'll get the rest of that money if I have to sue you. Well, let me tell you something. You're not going well, to get... here I am, Mr. Penny. I hope I ain't late for rehearsal. Mel Blake, what are you doing here? I don't need you on my show. Oh, but you hired me over the phone. You even raised my salary to $100. I? I gave you... What's going on here, anyway? Do you think I'd pay $100 just to hear you imitate Al Jolson? Nah. Oh, shut up! <laughs> now, how about it, Benny? Am I going to get my 49000 or do I call my lawyer? I don't care how many lawyers you call. You're not going to get any money out of me. But, Jack, it's only money. It's not as though he's taking your life's blood. Let me be the judge of that. <laughs> Now, mister, you better, you better return my deposit. I must have been out of my mind when I gave it to you. I wouldn't pay $50,000 for any crummy boat. Crummy? I'll have you know that some of the best men in this country own our yachts. Men like Humphrey Bogart, Robert Taylor, and Al Jolson. <laughs> now stop that! And get out! Out, both of you! Get out, get out, get out! Mary. Mary. What's going on around here anyway? Is everybody crazy? No, Jack. I, I don't blame you for being confused. Come on in the other room and I'll explain it to you. I wish you would. Hello? Hello, Susie. Our date is off tonight. I'm broke. Broke? Well, Rochester, I thought you said you had $20. Have you ever heard that expression, easy come, easy go? Uh-huh. Well, I've just had a personal demonstration. Goodbye. Mary, you mean I, I bought all those things just because I was hit on the head? Yes, Jack, but it's over now, so why don't you... I'll get it. Hello? Hello, Mr. Benny. This is the Beverly Hills supermarket. Yes? And we were checking over our accounts, and we find that you've neglected to pay a small bill of 69 cents. 69 cents? What was that for? A large can of tomato juice. Well, uh, wait a minute. You sold me that can of tomato juice? Yes. I am suing you for $50,000. What? Goodbye. 
How do I ever get like this? This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Sometimes the Benny Show, uh, which was done in front of a live audience, would run out of time, and boy, they'd have to end the show right now. Other times they'd go on for like two minutes with just a musical filler. But they were obviously out of time tonight. (laughs) Well, that was the Jack Benny Show, and that was originally broadcast on CBS back on October the 9th in 1949. And the name of that one is uh, generally thought to be, or generally considered to be, Jack's Memory is Lost. It was a good one, wasn't it? I really liked that, uh, that story. A lot of interesting things on there. A lot of nostalgia. My goodness. Uh, just a couple things Jack mentioned. He mentioned Speedy Riggs. And every time I hear that name, I keep thinking it's a ice skater, <laughs> like one of those speed skaters in the Olympics. But we've talked about this before. Speedy Riggs was a, a tobacco auctioneer. And he's the one you hear in the Lucky commercial at the beginning of the, of the show. He actually was a guest on the show at least once, probably more. And Jack would always kid uh, about Speedy Riggs because Lucky Strike was his sponsor for so long. How about some of the prices that were mentioned in the show tonight? Jack was going to spend $50,000 for a yacht. How big did they say it was? 59 foot? I forget exactly. But if you went yacht shopping today, what do you think a yacht would cost? A 50 to 60 foot yacht would start at about 650000 for the bargain basement, and it would go up to over $4 million, okay? A 60 to 70-foot yacht, $1 million to $5.9 million. And if you went for an 80 to 100-foot yacht, you're starting at about $3 million and going all the way to $14 million. And Jack spent $250 for a bathrobe. That really seemed expensive to me, especially in 1949. I looked up Saks Fifth Avenue, which is, I don't know, I guess one of the more expensive stores I can think of. I guess I could have looked at Neiman Marcus. But a man's bathrobe today at Saks Fifth Avenue, not on sale, ranges from about $225 to $420. So if he spent $400, or no, $250 on a bathrobe back then, that was a lot. Oh, and then he gave Rochester $20. And when Rochester called his girlfriend, he said he was going to what take her out for a steak dinner and go dancing, and, and they're going to take a cab. Oh, my. I was listening to Johnny Dollar the other day. His cab fare someplace within the city was 75 cents, I think. <laughs> so I, maybe that was reasonable. But I thought to myself, what were the prices for a nice dinner back in 1949? So I looked up the Brown Derby in Hollywood. And what do you think the prices were in 1949? A filet mignon. How much do you think? Now, remember, this was at a a very upscale restaurant, probably one of the more expensive restaurants in town. So this isn't, you know, Applebee's, all right? A filet mignon was $4. Fresh halibut with oysters, $1.75. Half a baked lobster thermidor. You don't even see lobster thermidor anymore. I used to like lobster thermidor. Very rich. Two bucks. Half a baked lobster thermidor, two bucks. A whole broiled live lobster, $2.50. And then on the side, that's probably all a la carte. So on the side, you have to have a vegetable. A giant Idaho baked potato, 50 cents. A whole artichoke. (laughs) When's the last time you went into a restaurant and could order a whole artichoke? A whole artichoke with hollandaise sauce, 75 cents. 
okay, a Cobb salad, which was created by the Brown Derby, right? Uh, legend has it that it was done in 1937, and it became a signature dish. It was named for the uh, restaurant's owner, Robert Howard Cobb. The story was that some of these movie stars would come in late at night, and the restaurant was getting ready to close, and they wanted something. And so Cobb didn't want to disappoint them, so he went into the kitchen and used whatever's available, and he came up with this salad. If you ever had a Cobb salad at the Brown Derby, it was very, very finely chopped. Almost too finely chopped for me. Not like you would think of a Cobb salad that you would get traditionally today. But the Brown Derby is the one that started it, and uh, it became a signature dish. Okay, what else was on the menu here? Um, a chef's salad was $1.50. Uh, let's see. And then for dessert, you got to have dessert, right? A piece of cherry pie, 50 cents. A piece of Derby cheesecake, 50 cents. Hot fruit and berry pie, baked fresh every 30 minutes, 50 cents. Want ice cream for dessert, 40 cents. <laughs> so the prices have changed a lot. Then he mentioned uh, the movie Jolson Sings Again when he was talking to Mel Blanc. The Jolson story came out in 1947. It won two Oscars. It was nominated for four more. And then, sure enough, in 1949, they came out with a sequel, Jolson Sings Again. That movie came out that year, and Jack Benny was talking about it. And then he mentioned a strike and he, when he was talking about fresh pineapple. And didn't he say that he needed to get over there to get fresh pineapple in Hawaii before the strike ends? Well, it ends up that there was a longshoreman's strike in Hawaii that lasted for six months. And it ended in October of 1949, about a week or two weeks right after this show first aired. And get this, the workers in Hawaii uh, belonged to a longshoreman's union, and they were aware that the longshoremen on the west coast of the United States, they were loading and unloading the same cargo. The west coast employees were being paid how much do you think? A longshoreman's a good job, right? A good union job. They were being paid $1.82 an hour, whereas their, their brethren in Hawaii were only being paid $1.40 an hour. And so they wanted the same pay as the guys on the West Coast. The employers insisted that wages should be determined by local condition, and uh, the employers had offered them a 12-cent pay raise, but they wanted, what's the difference, 42 cents an hour is what they wanted. This thing went crazy. This was back when the whole communist thing was going crazy, right? The McCarthy era. And labor unions were, by many people, considered communist. So there was a local newspaper editor writing regular editorials about how the, the longshoremen were communists. People were picketing. Uh, there was violence. It said um, that at one point there was a, a riot and 24 people were injured, including both police and union members. So in solidarity with the Hawaiian longshoremen, 6,000 longshoremen in the continental United States refused to unload cargo. So it really got crazy there for a while, but the strike did end that year, and uh, they, got their, I, they got what they wanted. They got the equal pay, and a lot of people were upset about it, and there was a lot of unrest about it for a while after that. Just one last thing. Jack mentioned, uh, he said to the cab driver to take him to 360 North Camden Drive, like that was his home address. Jack Benny actually lived on Roxbury in Beverly Hills, and this is a most fascinating neighborhood. Let me tell you who lived on Roxbury in Beverly Hills. 
uh, okay, at 906 Roxbury lived Ginger Rogers. At 918 North Roxbury lived Jimmy and Gloria Stewart. At 921 Roxbury, I don't know who lived there back then. Uh, Later, it was Ricky Schroeder. At 1000 North Roxbury, it was Lucille Ball. At 1002 North Roxbury was Jack Benny. So isn't that funny that Jack Benny uh, always talked about living next door to the Coleman's and then later on his TV show, living next door to Jimmy and Gloria Stewart. In reality, he did live next door to, uh, to Lucille Ball. And let me see. At 1004 North Roxbury lived Peter Falk. At, one, at 1015 North Roxbury lived Betty Grable. And uh, later, that house was lived in by Diane Keaton. And uh, let's see, what are some of the others? Oh, at uh, 1019 North Roxbury, George Gershwin lived. And then later, the house was sold to Rosemary Clooney and Jose Ferrer. And uh, their kids, it says, used to sell lemonade to tourists outside their home. At 905 Roxbury, uh, Oscar Levant. Jeannie Crane lived at 1017 North Roxbury. 1021 was Ira Gershwin, George's brother. At 1023 North Roxbury was Agnes Moorhead. Also, uh, Spencer Tracy had once lived there. At 1025 North Roxbury was Polly Bergen. At 800 Roxbury Drive was uh, Lionel Barrymore. At 809 Roxbury was Maureen O'Sullivan. And uh, 721 North Roxbury was Nelson Eddy. 708 Roxbury was Nanette Fabray. Uh, 518 Roxbury was Gilbert Rowland at one point. 806 North Roxbury, Frank Lovejoy, Nightbeat. Uh, 909 North Roxbury, Hal March. And 911 North Roxbury, Warner Baxter. <laughs> so that's quite a street. And you know, it's funny, when you talk about uh, the tour buses and whatnot that used to visit... Even though I suppose they got annoying at times, they said a lot of these people didn't even feel the need to lock their doors, that they felt totally safe in that neighborhood. Now, apparently there was a curfew and you were walking in that neighborhood in the, in the evening after dark. A policeman might stop you and ask you for identification. And if you didn't live on that street, they would escort you out. And, you know, I guess that's understandable with all of these celebrities that live there. But my goodness. But some fun stories. And here's just one really fun story. This was in Vanity Fair back in 2008. And it said, One ordinary evening when the world was still young, the telephone rang at 1000 North Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills, just as the family who lived there was sitting down to dinner. It was the next-door neighbor wondering if the family was home and asking the man of the house to leave the back door open. A few minutes later, the unmistakable sounds of America's most famous bad violinist came floating through the big white colonial house, and Jack Benny strolled into the dining room in his trademark gypsy scarf. The hostess, a redhead by the name of Lucille Ball, collapsed in laughter, and her husband, Gary Morton, offered the perennial 39-year-old a tip which Benny took, totally straight-faced. And then he runs out the front door because he knows just how long he has before the next tour bus uh, goes by for him to get home. And the next thing we hear is his voice yelling, Mary, oh Mary, because he's locked out. And then the next bus comes up, and imagine what those people must have thought as they witnessed Jack Benny locked out of his own house with his gypsy violin. (laughs) What a great story. That story was recalled by Lucy Arnaz, the daughter of Lucille Ball.
Uh, they must have had a lot of fun. But they did. They talked about, and now these stars that live out there, what do they do? They they have uh, cameras every place and huge fences, and 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 rightfully so because they're they're afraid. They live in fortresses. But back then, they said it was just a neighborhood, albeit a fancy one. And the neighbors knew each other and liked one another and got along and felt completely safe. Things have changed since 1949. Grandpa, tell me about the Sometimes it feels like This world's gone crazy Grandpa Take me back to yesterday When the line between right and wrong Didn't seem so hazy Lovers really fall in love to stay Stand beside each other, come what may Promise really something people can't Not just something they would say Families really bow their heads to pray Daddies really never go
No. No! from the music it is time for us to meet up with the good folks at Dodge City Kansas circa 1874 we are going to walk up Front Street shoulder to shoulder with Marshall Matt Dillon along the way we are going to run into Doc and Kitty and Chester except we're not not tonight we're not going to meet uh, Chester we're going to meet Chester we're not going to meet Doc and we're not going to meet Kitty And the reason why is this episode of Gunsmoke we're going to listen to tonight was very early in the run. It's from 1952, so it was uh, the first year, August the 30th, 52. I think it was like number 9 or 10, something like that, maybe even earlier. And what's unique about it is when Gunsmoke was new, they were still developing it. And they had not yet introduced all of the characters. And the characters they did, they hadn't really fleshed out Uh, nearly as well as they did as the show progressed. And so tonight, you are going to hear Matt talking to a bar matron who is over the other bar matrons, but her name is Brandy. And Doc, although I do believe he was in some of these earlier episodes, was a much different Doc. He was sort of a town drunk and sort of a Charles Adams type figure. They actually, his name in this was Charles Adams. It was a a takeoff on the Adams family creator, sort of ghoulish. And that was the idea with Doc in the beginning. But of course, uh, he became a much more likable character as the years went on. But this one is entitled The Juniper Tree. And it was first broadcast on August the 30th in 1952 on CBS. Now, I listened to this two nights ago and worked on it a little bit to make sure the sound was good and whatnot. And what I don't remember is why it was called the Juniper Tree. Now, later on, John Meston used to have great fun with some of his Gunsmoke titles, and he would name them things that either were very, very intelligent or they were so intelligent that dumb Bob could never figure out what they were. But uh, I don't know why this was entitled The Juniper Tree. Maybe you'll catch it as you listen to it tonight. Good story, uh, some pretty good characters, and one really um, (laughs) doozy of a female character uh, is introduced in this one tonight. So enjoy it, everybody. Here we go from 1952, Gunsmoke and The Juniper Tree. (laughs) 
city and in the territory on west, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. I see you received my complaint. I got it, Mingo. Where's Stanley? Where do you think? Upstairs. Brandy? Naturally. She always does mother him when he's in trouble. <laughs> be careful, Marshal. He might be dangerous. <laughs> well, Marshal, got a sweet word for Dixie? Yeah. Move. Oh, it's not very sweet. It was to the point. <laughs> Say hello to Jim for me, huh? Go away. It's me, Brandy. Matt. Come in, Matt. Join me in a drink? Where is he, Brandy? In the next room. Cried himself to sleep. Save it, Brandy. I gotta take him. Oh, why, Matt? Jim Stanley never did a mean thing in his life. He's no bad man. He stole money from Mingo's roulette table and he threw a bottle at him when he was caught. Mingo's present charges. Stanley can clear himself in court. Huh? Against Mingo's witnesses? Do you bring Stanley out or do I go get him? Go get him. But I wouldn't be proud, Matt. Stick to run and dance, all girls, Brandy. Let me run the law, huh? Stanley? Stanley! Hmm? Hmm? Oh, it's you, Marshal. I was sleeping. I want you to come with me, Jim. Come with you? Sure, Marshal. You better get up. Come on. Mm. Come on. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, where are we going, Marshal? Would you like to visit my ranch? I got a new colt. You prettiest little sorrel you ever Jim. saw. She... We're going to jail. Jail? Me, Marshal? Do I have to? Yes, Jim. I've never been in a jail. I'm sorry, Jim. No. No. I, I can't go in there. 
Oh, Marshal, I ain't never been locked up before. Please don't make me... I have to. I didn't mean to do it. Honest, I just lost my head when I realized my money was gone. I wouldn't have kept those chips. I know that. I, I just grabbed them. I don't know why. They were there, and I just grabbed them, and then Mingo started in on me. He kept saying things, bad things about... Take it easy, Jim. I wouldn't have cared, except that, well, Dixie was there... He kept yelling at me that I was a thief right right in front of her. I tried to make him stop, and he wouldn't. Then something happened. The bottle was there. And... You threw it at Mingo? No, no. I just threw it, Marshal. I was crazy. I, I didn't mean to hurt nobody. I believe you, Jim. Marshal, uh, will you ask Dixie to come and see me later? Yeah, sure, I'll ask her. Thanks. I just want to tell her not to blame Mingo for all this. She might say something or give up her job. Don't worry, Jim. I don't think Dixie's going to give up anything. He won't eat his dinner, Mr. Dillon. He just sits there staring. Yeah, poor devil. He won't really be convicted, will he? Well, I hope not, Chester. Mingo's the one who ought to be in jail. Look, Chester, this isn't exactly my idea of justice either. A shady gambler against a simple-minded horse rancher. Hello, Marshal. Goodbye, Chester. Hmm? <laughs> oh, Goodbye. I'll run along. You stay put, Chester. Oh, now, Marshal, I want to be alone with you. I sent for you to come and visit Jim Stanley, and you better be nice to him. <laughs> Most fellows are tickled pink if I like them. They say I'm pretty. You're pretty enough. Hmm, that's, that's better. I knew you liked me. I said you were pretty. I didn't say I liked you. Oh, now that's nasty. Would you like to hear what I really think of you? No, don't bother. I get the idea. You're Mingo's girl. When I feel like it. And why do you have to tease a man like Stanley, drive him to drinking and gambling and trouble like he's in now? He's sweet. He thinks I'm beautiful. Yeah. But even men like him wake up. Stick to Mingo. <laughs> Marshal, thought I'd drop in and see if your prisoner was all set for trial tomorrow. Mingo, I want you to withdraw those charges. And let that potential murderer go free? <laughs> no. You got back the chip Stanley took from your table, and his assaulting a man like you is ridiculous. He doesn't even wear a gun. A bottle constitutes a deadly weapon. Look it up, Marshal. Why are you doing this, Mingo? Why pick on a man like Stanley? Let's say I don't like him always slobbering over Dixie. She's private property. For that greedy little vixen he had sent Stanley to prison, knowing that it will probably crack his mind completely? That's his problem. You don't understand, Mingo. I don't like to see people pushed around. Well, don't cross me, Marshal. I already have. People get dead that way. Yeah, so I've heard. Now, just who are these witnesses of yours against Stanley? Ned Cole, Saginaw Henry. Both on your payroll. Dixie, 
Some of the other girls. All working for you, huh? Jim Stanley's as good as convicted, Marshal. There's not a thing you can do about it. Ah, uh, thanks, Brandy. <clears throat> you know, all you need to do is stop fighting yourself, Matt. You're mixed up. Yeah, uh, that's sure true, Brandy. You know, it's funny when, when it's something you can fight with your fists and your guns. It's easy, but how do you fight a deal like this? You gotta clear Jim somehow. With those witnesses against him, Jim can't win in court. Technically, he's a criminal. Oh, criminal, my foot. He admits the crimes. The judge will have to sentence him to at least a minimum jail term. We know there are witnesses who can prove he's innocent. Now, a smart man would find a way to make him talk. I've been thinking about it. Well, I'll tell Jim you were asking after him. I think he'd like that. Mm, he's Dixie's. had me a man once, Matt. I traded him for a bottle of brandy. <laughs> I paid a stiff price for my name. You're not through yet, Brandy. Oh, sure. <laughs> I play mother to everybody. Take everybody's troubles on my shoulders. Help salve my conscience. <laughs> Don't ever hurt a person, Matt. You never get through paying for it. Well, I, I better be going. Where? To try to get some of those witnesses to talk. Hello, Saginaw. Huh? Oh, it's you. I've been looking for you. And you've been looking for trouble. Well, you're beginning to sound like your boss, Mingo. It's late. What do you want? I want to read you something from this book. What book? This law book. Oh, so? First law I see says that uh, anyone giving a drink to an Indian is liable to fine up to $500. I saw you buy an Indian Pete a drink only last week. Pete's a stable boy. He ain't no savage. Law doesn't say savage. Says Indian. Pete's an Indian, so technically you broke the law. You can't make Next any... one says any man that disrobes in a public place is guilty of committing a public nuisance. Carries a fine of $100. Look, what the devil is all this? I saw you breaking a horse down in Harrison's Corral a little while back. You took your shirt off, and that's disrobing in a public place. Technically. You can't get away with this, Dylan. How much you make a month, Saginaw? Fifty, seventy-five. Uh-huh. Well, the way it looks, I can get you fined on enough of these laws to keep you broke for about five years. Five years? Then we can start all over again. You're, you're bluffing. I never even heard of these well, laws. Well, look for yourself here. If you witnesses are going to send Jim Stanley to jail on a technicality, then a lot of you are going to jail the same way. Well, laws may be there, but... They ain't fair. All right, Saginaw, if that's how you want it. Come on, let's go to jail. No, no uh, 
Wait. Well, then start talking. Well, Dixie shilled Stanley into losing his money, and, and me and Ned Cole egged him into grabbing a couple of chips when the wheelman wasn't looking. On Mingo's orders? Sure. Stanley looked down at the chips we swiped, and uh, he reached out to hand them back when Mingo jumped him. What was Dixie doing? Trying to keep from laughing. Yeah, I'll bet. And then what? Mingo rode Stanley hard to make him break down in front of Dixie. Finally, the poor lunkhead seemed to go crazy. He yelled and tossed a bottle at the bar. Not at Mingo? No, missed him by ten feet. Stanley was just working off his mad by busting the bottle. Paid for it, I guess he had the right. Yeah, I guess he had. First, I think Mingo was just deviling Stanley, and then he got the idea to press charges and send him to jail. We got orders out of testifying. Uh-huh. Well, thanks, Saginaw. Uh, Marshal, uh, I'd like you to know something. Yeah? I'm glad I told you about Stanley, because framing him into prison isn't my idea of something to be proud of. It shouldn't be. Ah, oh, good evening, Chester. My, what are you so happy about, Mr. Dillon? <laughs> everything, Chester, everything. Is it about Jim Stanley? It is about Jim Stanley. He's going to clear himself in court tomorrow. Come on, let's go tell him. Well, gracious, that is good news. He couldn't have taken much more of being locked up. <laughs> I know. Hey, Jim, wake up. We're going to break... Jim. Mr. Dillon, he's, he's gone. Both window bars are cut. Yeah. And here's what cut him. A hacksaw blade. And looky yonder, there's another. Oh, that fool. Why couldn't he have waited one more day and he'd have been free? Jim Stanley didn't have those hacksaw blades on him, Mr. Dillon. I know I searched him good. You searched Dixie good? Hmm? Oh, mercy, no, Mr. Dillon. She's a girl. He didn't have any other visitors. No, sir. Mingo's going to be awful mad when he finds out his girl helped Jim Stanley get away. Come on. You going to arrest Dixie, Mr. Dillon? I don't know, Chester. First, I got to find her. you, Marshal? Where's Dixie, Mingo? Dixie, she's gone. I don't know where she is. You're lying. No, I swear she disappeared hours ago. I still think you're lying. Dixie's here someplace. No, he's telling you the truth for once, man. Dixie's gone, all right. Are you sure, Brandy? Saw her ride out of town. With Stanley? Yeah, Matt. The two of them. Dixie and Stanley? Dixie passed him some saw blades. He cut his way out. That rotten double crossing hellcat. She's your girl, Mingo. I'll be the laughing stock of Dart City. Good. I hope they laugh you clear out of Kansas. <laughs> it's the last thing I'll do. I'll find her. Both of them. Finding them is my job, Mingo. Go ahead. But you better beat me to them, or you'll be arresting them dead. <laughs> They stopped here, all right. Probably changed horses and got some supplies. That wasn't why Stanley came home. Look, Chester. What? Water in the stock trough is right up to the top. And the barn's open. Feed pulled out where the stock can reach it. 
Even scared to death, Jim thought about his animals first. Mr. Dillon, you think Mingo's trailing Stanley and Dixie, too? Uh, perhaps. It's one good reason why we better catch him quick. Come on. Still no sign. Uh, looks like we've lost them for good now. What do we do? Go back, Mr. Dillon? Well, we can't let Mingo find them. Sure, but the way they've been zigzagging back and forth for the last four days, we don't have a chance in a thousand. I'm not so sure, Chester. Hmm? You know, there's a certain pattern about the way Stanley and Dixie have been moving. I don't think they're trying to leave this section at all. Yeah, we have been getting closer and closer to Dodge with every circle lately. And not only to Dodge. Mr. Dillon, you got an idea? Yeah, maybe. Come on, we'll ride back to Stanley's ranch. You think they came back here? I will soon find out. But from what we saw here before, I'll bet Stanley's not the kind to stey away from his ranch for very long. What? I'm hit the dirt. Behind the truck. Yeah. It's Jim Stanley. There's his horse. Yeah. All right, keep your eyes open. Stanley! Jim, it's Matt Dillon. Let me talk to you. You go away, Marshal. I don't want to hurt you, but I ain't going back to that jail. You go away now. I'll kill you. Jim, listen to me. I've got a witness. You better leave quick now. Please, Marshal. Mr. Dillon, I'm getting wet. It's better than getting shot. Keep your head down. Yes, you Sure he is wet. Stanley's in a good position. Closest cover for us is the barn. That's across 50 yards of clearing. That's a long run. He could pick us off before we made 10 feet. Yeah. Jim! I'm not leaving until I've talked to you. Leave me alone, Marshal. Can't you leave me alone? I'm coming to talk to you, Jim. No! No, stay back. I warn you. Mr. Dillon, don't do it. That's a crazy man. That's a frightened man, Chester. I'm coming unarmed, Jim. I don't think you're a murderer, but if you are, this is your chance. Well. Good, Good luck, Mr. Dillon. <laughs> Mr. Dillon. Stanley's shot sliced across my side like a branding iron. It was all I could do to ignore my fear and keep going. But somehow I reached the ranch house alive. I opened the door. Jim Stanley stood there holding his gun and crying. Jim. I, I, I didn't 
mean it. I didn't mean it. I was only trying to scare you. I'm not a killer. I never shot anybody in my life. Honest, Marshal. I know that, Jim. I'm afraid. I've always been afraid of things. I try like be like other people. It only seems to bring trouble. You can stop being afraid of the law and jail right now. That's all over with. You, you mean that, Marshal? Really? Really. But, but I shot you. Did you? I don't recall. Oh, but Mr. Dillon, shot hit your side. Right, right there. You see it? It's bleeding. Now, Jim, listen to me. You didn't shoot me. Oh? Well, all right, if, if you say so, Mr. Dillon. I say so. Here, I'll take that rifle. Now, let's go back to town and get this business settled, huh? You've been good to me, Marshal. Forget it, Jim. There is one thing, though. Dixie. Oh, she brought me hacksaw blades. I know that. She said you were going to hang me and that, that I had to escape. She kept saying... Uh-huh, oh. she was riding with you. But where is she now? Oh, she left me last night. I was glad. I was nearly wild listening to her talk about you and prison. <laughs> I even swore I'd kill myself before I'd go back to jail. I'm glad you didn't mean it. Oh, I meant it at the time. Oh, I was sure scared. You feel better now? Oh, yeah. Yes, I know everything is just going to be... Ah, ah, ah. The rifle slug splashed the side of Jim's face with red and he crumpled into the dirt. From the water trough, Chester opened up and drew the fire of whoever was hiding in the hayloft of the barn. I could see a gun barrel poking up from the side of the hayloft. I picked up Stanley's rifle. Mingo. Mr. Dillon, are you all right? Yeah, Chester. But Mingo's dead. Well, how about Jim Stanley, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, he was scared more than hurt. He should come to any minute. Well, my goodness. Oh, this looks like a sure enough war's been happening around here. Where have you been, Dixie? Oh, sure now, Marshal. A, a girl's got a right to look after her uh, investments. Uh, my Mingo and Stanley both dead. Well, now that's a real shame. Hmm? Oh, but Jim Stanley... Uh, Chester... You said investments. The only investment you've made is prison time for helping Jim escape. Me? Well, how are you going to prove anything, Marshal? With Jim dead. But he's... Chester, why don't you go look after the horses? But Mr. Dillon... Yes, sir. It's a right good thing because I'm going to be terribly busy, you know, taking care of poor Jim's ranch and money and... And, of course, the funeral and everything. Why should all that concern you, Dixie? Because I'm Jim Stanley's widow. What? I married him three days ago in this city. It was such a sweet wedding. Yeah, I'm sure it was. And now all I have left are some memories. And, of course, this little old ranch and Jim's money. Dixie, there's something you should know. Hmm? You also got a husband. Have you heard enough, Jim? 
Enough. Jim! When I, I saw you fall... Pure, pure bad, Dixie. Oh, Jim, you, you mustn't pay no mind to what I said. I, I was upset. Didn't I come back just to be with you? No good, Dixie. Jim's on to you now. Jim, are you going to let him talk to me like that? He's my friend. And I don't like you now, Dixie. Oh, it's too bad. I'm still your wife. Marshal, can she make that stick? Well, by law, you have to support her, Jim. Of course, I don't say how. Marshal, you stop putting ideas in... And, of course, she has to take care of your house for you, Jim. Clean it, do the chores, cook for you. Cook? Me? Cook for him? He can make you, Dixie. It's his right. (laughs) All right or not, I'd like to see him try. He can do it, Dixie. Yeah? Well, I can't if I'm not here. I'm leaving right now. You want to ride into town with us, Jim? No. I think I'd rather stay here for a while, Marshal. If it's all right. Yeah, sure, sure. I'll fix it. But in a few days, when you feel like it, come in and see me, and we'll help you get that divorce taken care of. Divorce? On grounds of desertion. She just deserted you, remember? Chester and I are your witnesses. Oh, well, thanks, Marshal. I sure do thank you. So long, Jim. Bye, Marshal. Bye. Come on, Chester, let's go. Uh, he's had it too rough out here on the frontier, hasn't he, Mr. Dillon? Uh, Jim Stanley, I mean. It's addled him, sort of. Yeah, I... I guess that's it, Chester. Men like him need looking after. Yeah, we got all kinds out here, Chester. Come on, let's get back to town. Smoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Herb Purdom, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner and Michael Ann Barrett, with Paul Dubov, Vivi Janice, and Bill Lally. Harley Bear is Chester. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. <laughs>
originally broadcast on August the 30th, 1952, one of the very early episodes of Gunsmoke entitled The Juniper Tree. One way you can always tell if it's an earlier episode is by the uh, sound effects of the guns. We've talked about that before. It was like a year and a half or two years later where they really came up with some much better sound effects, realistic sound effects of the six-shooters. Uh, but this was a good good episode tonight. I thought it was a good story, well-developed. We got to know Matt a little better. We got to know Chester a little better. Kitty is coming in the very near future, and um, we'll see Doc uh, probably next week. So stay tuned, because we have an episode of Gunsmoke every week, and that will include next week. All right, everybody, that's it. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. Mm-hmm.